Switzerland and Massachusetts are a bit like long-lost cousins, or at least I'd like to think so. Roughly the same population size. Okay, well, Switzerland has better mountains, and Boston has better seafood. But both are similar in that they often are in the top spot in innovation rankings. They're both economic powerhouses. Crucial to those rankings are special innovation zones, places where ideas and investment flow freely. Switzerland, for example, has created six innovation parks around key hotspots of research and commerce. But it's the Boston area that's home to what's been called, quote, the most innovative square mile on Earth. Today, we're going to dive into that space. It's called Kendall Square. Welcome to Tectonic. I'm your host, Brendan Karch. This season, we're looking at innovation in construction and urban design. Our guest this episode is Bob Buderi, a journalist and entrepreneur. His new book, called Where Futures Converge, tells the history of Kendall Square, this postage stamp of former swampland that is now home to MIT and some of the most important biotech research on Earth. We'll talk with Bob about the history of urban infrastructure and design in Kendall Square, about what makes this place tick, and how it could still improve. So maybe you can tell the listener who doesn't know anything about Kendall Square. Can you describe this place, paint a picture? Well, the picture of Kendall Square today is a lot different from how it started out, of course. But today it is this highly concentrated mass, mainly of big lab and technology buildings. So biotech labs, pharmaceutical labs, some high-tech labs as well, like uh, Akamai, Google, Microsoft, all the big players have R&D campuses there of some sort. So it's this very um, dense place. It's really, people call it the most innovative square mile in the world, but it's really only about a half square mile or a square kilometer. Of course, Kendall Square didn't always look this way. In the early centuries of European settlement, the area along the Cambridge banks of the Charles River, just opposite downtown Boston, was home to more fish than people. Kendall Square was originally marshland, and uh, it was uh, the kind of place that when the tide was in, you actually had, it would cut off a lot of the, the marshy land. You have little knolls or drumlins, they call them, that you, so you'd see almost like islands, but it was completely undeveloped. Yet it was from the start something people had their eye on as a center for commerce, a a place to do trade and make money um, because it was the most direct landing spot from Boston if you wanted to get to Harvard Square and Harvard. So uh, Harvard and Cambridge were founded in the 1630s. Um, But it wasn't until the end of the 1700s that they actually built a bridge right there connecting Boston to um, what's now Kendall Square. Uh, And it represented basically this, you know, this direct trade route that shortened the distance uh, between the two cities dramatically. It was when the Industrial Revolution gripped Boston that Kendall Square began its first development phase as a manufacturing powerhouse. 
in the 1830s, the first kind of what we call high-tech entrepreneurs of their day, Charles Davenport, a man who innovated in railroad cars, uh, making them quieter, uh, making them more um, easy to board and, and operate and faster. Uh, he built his his company right in Kendall Square on Main Street. And by 1900, it was one of the countries and one of the world's densest um, factory uh, towns. So you had 200 companies right within a couple miles of Kendall Square. And these were, a lot of them were factories like soap makers, uh, candy makers, uh, but some were high-tech for the day too, like the, the leading rubber hose company that innovated in strengthening fire hoses and then later bicycle tires was there. So you had this, this very um, packed place with actually the, 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 the town, the city of Cambridge was at that point still bigger than it was in 2010. It's hard to imagine the industrial Kendall Square of 1900 turning into the biotech hub of today, except that both are, in their own times, innovation centers, relying on the concentration of knowledge and resources. But this earlier industrial Kendall Square, it lacked something key. MIT, known in its early days as Boston Tech, was founded on the opposite Boston side of the river in 1861. It would spend its first half century there. They began looking for a place to expand because where they were were in Back Bay was just too small and crowded for this growing institution. And they found this land that was just sitting there, again by a quirk of fate, um, this still kind of marshy land, a lot of it, um, with factories all around it. Um, and so they bought it in 1912, and they opened in 1916, four years later when they got things built. So I'm actually going to quiz you about your own book now. Sure. You say that March 23rd, 1912, might be the most fateful day, <laughs> speaking of quirks of fate, in the history of Kendall Square. What two things happened on that day? That was the day MIT closed on its deal to buy the land. Um, not all the land is now MIT, but a big chunk of it. And that was the same day that the new subway opened uh, between connecting Harvard Square and Boston. And we, boy, do we wish we could have a subway that operated that well and that fast today because it was three minutes between stops and they ran trains. I forget what it was exactly, but like every three minutes, something like that. So step back to the Kendall Square of 100 years ago. It was a loud, frenetic industrial zone with a gleaming new subway and a growing, but not yet world-famous MIT. But it was also a bustling neighborhood, complete with shops, even a school. In some ways, it was a more complete community than it is today but it was also a pretty smelly one. I, I heard the, the rendering that they would do, the animal rendering to make soap, just hung in the air and stifled people. Um, so I, I wouldn't, I don't think you would trade it. The 1930s depression hit Kendall Square hard, and the area never recovered its industrial vibrancy. But a new, more lab-based science innovation would take its place, 
and MIT would play a pivotal role. The first huge boon came amidst World War II, when MIT scientists were tasked with developing a key technology to win the war. No, not the atomic bomb, but rather radar. One of the mysteries of wartime science, one of the war's most closely guarded secrets, the miracle of radar is now revealed. What happened in World War II was the famous radiation laboratory was created at MIT, a secret lab to develop microwave radar. Thousands of top uh, physicists and uh, young engineers were recruited there. Three, 4,000 it grew. It grew to be a bigger project than the atomic bomb. Um, and they were very interdisciplinary. They were engineers, physicists. There were, you know, um, mechanical specialists. There were even um, some biologists and things like that. And they just did things in a collaborative, team-like way to get things done for the war effort. The progress they made was immense, and it had an enduring impact on Kendall Square. They say that that the radiation laboratory advanced the state of microwave electronics um, by about 25 years in the five wartime years. And it it really made MIT, after the war, a huge center of electronics research and and helped spawn the digital computing industry all around Boston, the mini computers, all those things. The Defense Research Innovation Cluster thrived in the Boston area after World War II buttressed as it was by the Cold War race for technological supremacy. But Kendall Square did not necessarily thrive in the 1950s to 1970s. It faced a challenge common across America, suburbanization. You found this kind of wasteland. In fact, the wasteland was still there when I was a fellow at MIT in 86. Um, You would go past the Marriott Hotel which had just been built or was just being built. And it would be parking lots and rundown buildings. And it was, it was cheap garage type of space if you were had a startup, but it, it was scary at night, you know, and it was sketchy. The first wave of early computing giants had mostly moved to the Route 128 corridor in the suburbs of Boston, leaving Kendall Square in need of reinvention. If Bob noticed anything, it was that becoming an innovation hub meant always changing. When I started this book, the f- one of the very first interviews I decided to do was E.O. Wilson, the famous biologist from Harvard and a, a, a huge um, student and, a, and scholar on how ecosystems evolve in, in the wild. And that, that this point that sustainability over time does not equal stability um, was was really crucial, that you're going to have all this upheaval and change and some good times and bad times, but you have to actually keep reinventing yourself and having new species, so to speak, come in uh, in order to keep the, the ecosystem vibrant and, and ongoing. And that's really what, what we see in Kendall Square. By the 1980s, the Boston suburban computing powerhouse was in decline being eclipsed by Silicon Valley. But two new technologies were set to redefine Kendall Square. Two kind of parallel 
technologies were, were, were hitting the world at the same time. One was this new field of biotech. Um, and the other, though, was software, AI, personal computing. Uh, and it was that that actually um, captured the imagination and spawned the first kind of new wave of high-tech business in Kindle Square. Um, so you, you found um, Kindle Square was actually known as AI Alley. There were so many artificial intelligence companies, very high-flying ones like thinking machines and symbolics that went public, had you know um, close to 100 million in revenues. They had lots of employees, hundreds of employees. This shift to software and AI was accompanied by a new center at MIT focused on all things digital media, known as the MIT Media Lab. They influenced Kindle Square as well because companies set up labs uh, to be near it um, in software. And then the last kind of major piece that happened was Lotus moved its headquarters to Kindle Square. It was the world's largest software company for a time, bigger than Microsoft. And so that was all these things were capturing the, the headlines far more than this biotech thing. Though computing was grabbing headlines in the 80s and early 90s, it was the new biotech sector that would have the bigger long-term impact on Kendall Square. And here, two Swiss companies were pivotal. The first, Biogen, was a Swiss pioneer in emerging DNA tech. In the 80s, this had evolved to where biotech was possible, recombinant DNA had been invented. Uh, and the first biotech companies were being formed. Biogen itself was, actually, was as you said, formed in Europe. It was uh, founded by a combination of uh, American and European scientists, supported by venture capitalists. Um, it was um, actually incorporated in Luxembourg, and then they headquartered in Geneva. They really wanted to be back closer to two of the key founding scientists um, who were Wally Gilbert at Harvard and Phil Sharp at MIT, both of whom uh, would win Nobel Prizes. Um, and the student pool that they were creating, easier hiring if it was close by. Um, and so uh, they moved their R&D headquarters to Kendall Square, Benny Street in Kendall Square. Nearly two decades later, with pioneers like Biogen and Genzyme, now established players, a Swiss pharma giant, Novartis, also made the move to Kendall Square. It sent shockwaves around the life sciences world, the pharmaceutical world. You know, in those days, uh, the R&D headquarters was in Basel. Um, they had a lab in New Jersey as well. Um, but Novartis was killing it. They had more FDA-approved drugs than any other pharmaceutical maker, and yet they were going to change the way they did R&D. They were going to hire an American to run the lab. This was a major turning point. Ten years later, virtually every large pharmaceutical maker had followed suit to get close to the, the centers of Harvard and MIT, but also access to the future talent they were producing. Fast forward to today, and Kendall Square is booming. Biotech dominates, building cranes are everywhere, and MIT has a deeper innovation presence in the square than ever before, with several new institutes in the life sciences, big players like the Whitehead, Broad, and Koch Institutes. 
So the first one in biology was the Whitehead Institute, which opened right across the street from MIT, um, became the leading producer of papers, scientific papers, most cited papers, almost immediately. Uh, then the Broad opened in 2004, kind of spawned in many ways from the Whitehead Institute. Uh, the Broad Institute um, became this hugely influential uh, institute in genomics and uh, was is very important in, in, in the COVID era as well. Um, the Koch Institute for Integrative Cancer Research uh, formed at MIT, it, it embodies this multidisciplinary. It's engineering with biology. That's its whole to attack cancer. That's its whole ethos. Uh, and you put, there's no place in the world that has three uh, nonprofit research organizations like those, and they aren't the only ones. Many of these institutes and companies have built gleaming new buildings on top of old parking lots increasing the density of the square. But some have actually recycled old industrial infrastructure, too. Take Novartis, which moved into the old Necco wafer candy factory. The Necco plant for candy making was, in many ways, ideal for a pharmaceutical maker because it had been built very with very thick walls and floors to reduce vibrations, um, and that's exactly what they needed in, with these new um, life science labs. They wanted, they could not afford to have um, the vibrations. They needed to, they had to clean it out. They had to really do some deep industrial cleaning. But, but they all said when Novartis found this, that this was the perfect building. And they didn't have to build, it was much cheaper to re refit that than to build a new one with the standards they had. This mix of old and new has created density in Kendall Square that rivals the old industrial era. And it's this density of commerce and research that drives innovation. It allows for ideas to collide over lunches, coffees, random encounters on the street. It allows for startups to work neck and neck on similar challenges. And it allows talent to concentrate. And yet, the urban density of Kendall Square is deeply imbalanced. Kendall Square is teeming with companies, but it's not a very good neighborhood. This is a problem with innovation zones across the globe, even in Switzerland. It's got some challenges. It's a little soulless in the sense of um, there's not a lot of housing. There's not like there's one grocery store which opened in 2019. Uh, there's not a pharmacy. It doesn't have a neighborhood feel at all. It feels a little bit like a business district in a big you know, uh, city in a kind of sterile city, but it's packed with innovation. Efforts to make Kendall Square a more livable place have struggled. There were, in before the pandemic, probably evolved to about 15 restaurants, and you had a decent chance of a good meal and coffee and all that stuff. Uh, of course, that has changed a lot in the pandemic. There aren't as many places, but it, it just is... It's not a neighborhood. Um, there are there's housing, condos, and apartments, but it's really for the affluent. There's not uh, a feeling of a neighborhood at all. Kendall Square's reputation has also made it one of the most expensive places on earth to rent space. Tech giants like Google and Facebook have moved in, and this can be a problem for the innovation space. 
So you have all these gigantic corporations and very little startup space. And that is a big change um, just in the last 15 years. Um, so that's one thing that I do think is something to um, really be concerned with because it's the startup companies that are often doing the new innovations, taking the risk on new things. And the big companies, as has been well documented, tend to focus on their existing lines of business and defend them uh, sometimes to the death, their death. As Bob notes in his book, local leaders have been lamenting Kendall Square's deficits for decades since its days as mostly parking lots. New zoning rules are working to create more affordable spaces for living in startups. 1,400 new housing units are planned. But to truly transform Kendall Square into a more livable destination, it might be that bigger ideas are needed. One of the efforts that's been hovering around the Kendall Square um, uh ecosystem for a while is the idea to bring in a kind of world-class art center uh, into Kendall Square. And uh, I was just part of a, a group called the Creative Corridor. I, I was met with them. And they're trying to create not just one art center, but a, a, a kind of string that connects East Cambridge to, to, to Kendall Square, where you have artists, space, studios, dance, things like that, um, performance art. Um, where you can bring that mix into into this high tech, and boy, if you started thinking like what new ideas could entrepreneurs come up with that combine the arts and and technology, that could be a way for Kendall Square to that could be this next uh, you know part of the, the answer for the future in terms of you know being different and evolving. And so Kendall Square emerges as a paradoxical urban space. It's dense, but not fully livable. It thrives on wild, often unplanned growth. It's nearly impossible to predict its long-term future. But on the other hand, maybe more planning could make Kendall Square not just attractive for innovation, but also as a community, too. I quote uh, Bob Metcalf, who invented the Ethernet, saying, uh, invention is a flower, innovation is a weed. And, and that's the idea that, yeah, you can create things through invention and deliberateness, but true innovation just kind of takes off and is uncontrollable. If you look at Kendall Square's evolution, it is this weird uh, mashup of some really deliberate planning and some total misguided plans. With all this talk about Kendall Square as a great place to innovate, but not to live, you might actually wonder uh, where exactly Bob lives. You used to live in Kendall Square. You owned a condo there, but I hear you sold it. So what was life like there and why'd you get out? Well, I mean, I loved Kendall Square. I loved having my condo there. I, I you know, I might just walk a block to my company uh, and uh, you could walk across the bridge to go to the movies in Boston. You know, it was easy to meet people all around. It was just, and you could just walk there. And it wasn't going to take, like if you were in the Bay Area, you didn't have to get in a car and get hit, stuck in traffic. And it could take, you know, half your day to have one little meeting. Um, so all that was just wonderful. And and just as I sold my company and, and my wife retired, 
you know, we had had this place in New Hampshire for a long time. We just decided it was time to, to you know, get out of the, the city life. I, I still miss it. <laughs> To learn about the past, present, and potential futures of Kendall Square, check out Bob's recent book, Where Futures Converge, published, of course, by MIT Press. We hope you enjoyed this two-episode series on innovation in architecture and urban design. Tectonic is hosted by me, Brendan Karch, with production and sound design by Anor Issa. You can subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts. We are a production of Swissnex in Boston, the world's first science consulate, located in the heart of Cambridge, Massachusetts. You can find us on LinkedIn or on Twitter at Swissnex Boston, or on the web at swissnex.org slash Boston.